Hello and welcome to the course Food Toxicology. My name is Professor Greg Muller and I'm the instructor for the course. I'd like to first welcome all the students that have uh, undertaken uh, this particular course of study. We hope that uh, this course provides you with a good sound uh, structural basis uh, for an understanding and enhancing your knowledge in food toxicology. When we talk about food, we're talking about one of the most intimate relationships that we have with our environment. If you go back in history, you see that in fact uh, man has always questioned or challenged this particular interaction with his food system. This food system has presented many challenges in terms of potential or actual toxicosis. And in fact, through our history, uh, we have found what is good to eat and what perhaps is poisonous or bad to eat. Uh, we have actually used uh, that aspect of food uh, in, in anger, uh, chemistry and anger, if you will, in terms of poisoning, where in fact uh, food or food components have been used to do in one's enemies. What we have in terms of uh, the present day food system is probably the safest and most nutritious uh, food uh, in the history of mankind. Uh, many would argue that in the past 50 years and definitely in the past century, there have been tremendous advances in the science and understanding of food and food intoxication. What we've been able to do is develop a new food system, a distributed food system, where in fact not every person was responsible for their own food. In other words, we moved from an agrarian society, a hunter-gatherer society, to a more industrialized society where one segment of the population was responsible for food and the distribution of that food in a system approach. This transition has actually changed our whole working nature in terms of this intimate relationship with our environment, our intimate relationship with food, because we used to know where our food came from. We could look at the milk and point to the cow that it came from. We could look at the grain or the bread and look at the field where it was grown. That is a rare occurrence in most modern societies. And so what we have today in our distributed food system is a requirement for reliable strangers. And think about the reliable strangers that actually uh, influence your daily lives. Uh, perhaps uh, think about the last time you flew in an airplane and the system of reliable strangers that allowed you to hurtle through the air at 500 miles per hour with only uh, inches worth of uh, metal and insulation between you and the outside world at 30,000 feet. When you talk about the pilots, the engineers, the fuel companies, the uh, radar operators on the ground, all of the reliable strangers that allow you to have the capacity for air travel. Broaden that out to other aspects of your daily life, including this intimate contact with food. When we go to the marketplace, we have a respect that along that chain, that system, the individuals were reliable. Even though they didn't know who you are, they took great care and concern in providing a safe and nutritious food product. 
What happens in food toxicology is that system sometimes fails. It fails because of unreliable strangers, but sometimes because we have limited understanding in terms of the science or some of the engineering principles that are involved in this whole distributed food system. This presents an opportunity in terms of learning from our mistakes, learning from what potential risks are out there, and designing practices to enhance the reliability of this food system. This course is a part of the development of your background to enhance the reliability of the food system and to enhance your understanding of risk and your understanding of food toxicology. We have three goals in this course. We want students to actually develop a broad foundation of knowledge on the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls of toxicants that might cross into the human food system. When we talk about the food system, we sometimes will develop it as the human food chain. And so it's not always in the production aspects of food, but it can be in the environmental relationships of food growing and food production. We're going to try to also have students just develop a high level of understanding and the ability to have interpretive capacity for the subject area of food toxicology. Finally, what we want students to do is have a developed critical thinking capacity when it comes to risk and the interpretation and communication of risk in terms of essentially being able to become uh, informed individuals that help our society manage food-associated risk. Each time here in uh, food toxicology, what we'll do is we'll start uh, a formal lecture with a series of learning objectives that enhance your uh, organization of thoughts for this particular presentation. For today, in terms of our learning objectives, what we're going to do is try to introduce this course and some of the course expectations that I, as a professor, have for the students formally enrolled. We'll start off with a definition of toxicology and its subdiscipline, food toxicology. We'll try to list the course of study in terms of all the lecture segments uh, for this course. This is an ambitious undertaking. I expect that the degree of difficulty for this course will be substantial for most students, whether upper division undergraduate or graduate students. The degree of difficulty is high because of the workload required to maintain good progress and performance. The workload primarily is involved in readings and doing problem sets as well as examinations and final examinations as well as the papers that are required and we'll discuss those. What we'll do is try today to examine the interaction of toxicology and risk analysis. One of the ways that we apply the fundamental knowledge of toxicology is in managing our own relationships, our own particular human problems. One of the big problems that we have is the provision of a safe and nutritious food supply. We'll try to use this information. We'll define risk assessment, risk communication, and risk management. 
This course is about food toxicology, and food toxicology is used in risk assessment, risk communication, and risk management course, but this is not necessarily a risk analysis or risk process uh, course. You can actually develop this uh, skill, and many uh, of the graduates taking courses like this will have careers where they will be involved in one of the aspects of risk analysis. We'll try to today examine the fundamentals of human health risk assessment as an introductory preface to some of the course materials. We'll discuss this in light of risk perception. Uh, what are the human subjective drivers uh, that cause, for example, the general public to quite often be in direct opposition about the level of risk than informed experts, uh, scientists, or engineers. We'll finish off today with formally listing the course goals, uh, again, to allow you to uh, introduce yourself to what you may develop over the course of this particular uh, term. The course itself uh, I've introduced as being uh, one that is going to be uh, uh, reasonably difficult. Uh, the course will require a substantial level of effort. Uh, this level of effort is typically associated with the two to three hours per week per credit hour, so the expectation is on the order of six to nine hours uh, uh, and sometimes at a minimum uh, of effort on a weekly basis to maintain good progress that's going to set you up for a positive assessment, uh, also known as grades, uh, in terms of this particular course of study. I respect the fact that there is a large reading uh, workload that we're trying to master a tremendous amount of material. What I've tried to do in terms of the course structure is organize that material for you on a fairly well-developed course website. Everyone taking this course is doing it uh, as a webcast e-course. If you have never done a webcast e-course, this is a uh, new environment. The relationship with your professor is perhaps different. Uh, we don't have the same sort of classroom discussion capacity. What I have done is open myself up in terms of phone calls, emails, and even voice over internet uh, to allow students to have the degree of intimacy in terms of discussion that electronic media can provide. This is limited. This course will be different than your traditional class, but hopefully we can make it better using the superior aspects of some technology to organize learning materials for different types of learners. I invite students in this course to find their comfort zone in terms of the presentation and the accessing of course materials. Students are required to read and to do homework, exams, and papers for the course. But in terms of preparing themselves for that, in terms of the learning materials, sometimes uh, things such as lectures are not as valuable to some types of learners, but there are other learners, uh, visual learners, that need to hear and see uh, the instructor, and we've tried to augment that in terms of a webcast course with, uh, with video. 
We hope that this video uh, comes uh, down to you via uh, a fast uh, computer connection. We have plans to make it uh, downloadable to portable media players. Uh, students are encouraged to contact me if they have any technology troubles as or challenges in terms of the initial stages of the course and we can see if we can coach you towards some level of success. I encourage you also to uh, manage the enrollment aspect of this course. It is offered conjointly as an undergraduate course and a graduate course and I'll talk about the differentiation of the workload for undergraduate credit and for graduate credit. One of the things I will direct you to is the course syllabus, which is downloadable from the course website that is intimate in terms of the presentation of this course and the related learning materials. I encourage you to be aware of the drop-add deadlines for the semester. Uh, these are available at the university website. If you are an enrolled student uh, and this course is appearing to be too challenging for you, or you have other obligations, I encourage you to make yourself aware of the drop and add deadlines so that you can manage uh, the course with respect to your own personal academic goals. The reading homework uh, assignments and the assessment are all on the website. This is a fully electronic course. A fully electronic course, perhaps unlike others that you may have had in terms of online courses, in your academic study. Uh, we will do all of our translation uh, uh, and transport of materials as bits and bytes. Your homeworks will be online. Your examinations I will send to you as email attachments of which you will complete at home uh, as an independent study and return to me. Uh, these particular assignments are operated under the student honor code that we adopt for this course. As a student in this course, you agree to the honor code. The honor code is published on, uh, via a link on the home page and on the course website. I encourage you and I require you to read that and commit to that prior to taking this particular course. There are two major elements to that honor code. One is the limitation of plagiarism and respect for the work of others. The assessment of this course is an assessment of your skills, knowledge, and abilities, not the skills, knowledge, and abilities of uh, the downloadable documents or the paste and cuts you might find on the internet. Okay? With that, I can also tell you that our examinations are typically fully open book and open web. And so there are resources available. I want those resources to be translated in terms of the assessment works that you perform. The other aspect of the honor code is that on these assessments, exams, and papers, you work alone. We are not trying to assess the ability of a group of students to uh, complete the required materials and demonstrate their knowledge. We are looking for you to demonstrate your knowledge. And so one of the things about honor is it is a very personal and very intimate thing. Is cheating possible? Yes. Is cheating prevalent in terms of academia and colleges? Yes. Uh, as many as 70 or 80 percent of students uh, routinely surveyed in U.S. universities admit to some level of cheating. Uh, when you cheat, you cheat yourself. 
at some point in time in your life uh, these things in terms of your moral character, uh, in terms of your s personal sense of honor, uh, will come home to roost. There is no need to cheat. There is no need to plagiarize in this course. You will do yourself honorably and you will master the material better by doing the hard work associated with this particular course. The exams, as I said, will be delivered to you. These are downloadable or, or uh, email attachments uh, as Word documents. You fill out the, the particular required problem sets, uh, some of them multiple choice, and you return them as an email attachment. I grade them and present back to you via email attachment the graded material with as much uh, confidentiality as email will provide. Your homeworks are done online. Uh, via WebCT. WebCT is a secure client in terms of transactions of student materials. It's also a nice client in terms of the formally enrolled students in the class having the ability to meet each other and interact with each other. Uh, one of the things that is allowed on WebCT is a uh, discussion area. I do not grade nor do I require you to participate in discussion, however I strongly encourage you. One of the reasons is we as a class never come together and so in terms of the social interaction of the full range of students that we have in a webcast e-course like this, this area, this discussion area is perhaps the only chance that you have to essentially say hello to your fellow students to talk about some of the issues that might be raised in the course materials. Um, one of the things that uh, you should be aware of is that because this course uh, is beamed out uh, nationally and internationally, some of the people sitting beside you in this virtual classroom can be extraordinarily interesting, talented, and accomplished individuals. Quite often we have mid-career or advanced career professionals take courses like this sitting next to a 20-year-old college student. Uh, these interactions, these relationships, uh, the life's knowledge, if you will, that can be provided back and forth among the students of the class can be very valuable. The cultural, uh, nationalistic uh, interactions uh, uh, as well in terms of different points of view uh, about some of the issues related to food toxicology are also a part of the potential uh, benefits of interaction on some of the course discussion areas. Now graduate students that are enrolled in this course will do uh, an extra project. This is a substantial undertaking. Uh, this is a uh, topic review. Uh, the syllabus and the course website uh, uh, determine and talk about uh, some of the requirements for the uh, topic review uh, required of graduate students. But all students will be doing a case study, a term paper if you will. This will be a substantial document, a substantial undertaking that is a good part of the assessment of the course. What I look for in your case study is the ability of the student to integrate all of the different aspects, the things that you have learned in this course about sources, pathways, receptors, and control of toxicants in the human food system to integrate it in a case study that focuses on a toxicant or a group of toxicants 
in a particular situation, a particular food, a particular presentation or manifestation of human disease. I think uh, historically students uh, enjoy challenges uh, such as these to demonstrate uh, their expertise and it helps them synthesize their knowledge into formal documents similar to the formal documents that uh, advanced uh, toxicology students and workers in the field produce uh, on a routine and regular basis in terms of managing the risks of intoxication with food. WebCT um, is uh, a portal uh, that is for enrolled students only and so there is a password uh, and username uh, associated with that. On student emails uh, interactions I will send out all of the instructions to make sure that everyone gets into WebCT uh, so that you know I can track your access of WebCT in terms of where you've gone, uh, what homeworks uh, you've done or don't do. There is timing associated with the uh, production of homeworks. We ask that the homeworks are uh, completed three full days after the day of the scheduled lecture delivery. Why do we have you on a schedule? Because of the workload associated with this course. If you get behind in your readings, uh, uh, this class uh, can be uh, more difficult than it needs to be. Uh, I am fairly tolerant with individuals that have other obligations, uh, crises, business travel, uh, academic travel, other things. If there is uh, a problem with completing any of the assignments on time, uh, you need some special uh, attention by all means contact me. Uh, we try to be fair to all students, but fair to all students also means an understanding and a recognition that we live very complicated lives and sometimes completing all of the course materials in a timely fashion is more of a challenge than it needs to be. In terms of this course, this is a science course and although there are elements of toxicology and food toxicology which introduce passions into debate, uh, we will be scientists in our approach to toxicology and toxicosis related to food. I put up here uh, a quote from B.F. Skinner of uh, rat maze fame from 1953. Most of us have taken high school biology, remember the name uh, B.F. Skinner. I like this quote because it adequately tells us about science and scientists and our difference in terms of our attitudes about the world around us. The quote is that science is first of all a set of attitudes. It is a disposition to deal with the facts rather than with what someone has said about them. Science is a willingness to accept facts even when they are opposed to wishes. The opposite of wishful thinking is intellectual honesty. Scientists have simply found that being honest with oneself as well as others is essential um, to progress. Experiments do not always come out as expected, but the facts must stand and the expectations fall. The subject matter, not the scientist, knows best. This establishes a good context for who we are in terms of the course of study of this particular course in food toxicology. We are scientists using the scientific method and 
demonstrated knowledge from the scientific method to formulate uh, uh, hypotheses, to formulate uh, observations, to formulate conclusions based on that particular method. My expectations in terms of the course is uh, that you are sensitive to the mortality and morbidity that is a part of a toxicology course. You need to have respect for life and for the unfortunate people and animals and the various case study depictions of toxicosis that, toxicosis that we present as a matter of study in this course. I expect that students tolerate each other and respect their different opinions. Uh, we all come to uh, issues of intimacy like food uh, with a certain set of passions. Uh, I expect um, you, uh, th that you uh, try to understand the passions. Uh, you may disagree with your fellow students, but you must have respect for their passions and for the potential that they may have a different point of view. I expect that you will do the hard work of learning. I work very hard to put this course together to make it a coherent uh, set of organized knowledge uh, in a course of study. I expect that you will do the same, that you will present this as a focus uh, for the next uh, semester, a focused area of study uh, that your expectations of uh, accomplishment will match my expectations of your ability to master this particular subject. I also expect that you will have patience with technical failure. This is a high-end technical delivery course system. E-courses, webcasting courses will have technical difficulties. Have patience with technical failure. I often say live by technology, die by technology. We are trying to put together a tremendous amount of information in an organized presentation scenario. There will be occasional failures of that technology. Well, it's best to start off a course like this with some background definitions. Um, and the definition of toxicology from the Society of Toxicology is it is the science that deals with the adverse effect of chemicals on living organisms and, the, and to assesses the probability of their occurrence. Probability is an important part in terms of risk management associated with toxicology. In terms of the history of toxicology, uh, we have a, a very colorful history uh, in terms of man's relationship to the natural world and his exploration of uh, the uh, plant materials and minerals uh, that would cause uh, death. The medical caduceus, the symbol of medicine, you'll notice uh, the appearance of snakes. This particular symbol has uh, had uh, history uh, traced back to uh, perhaps two and 3,000 BC recognize that snakes uh, with their venom uh, were uh, a fairly intimate risk to many ancient societies in terms of intoxication and represent the potential mortality. Although we don't know the full interpretation of the caduceus, it is interesting that toxicology and man's relationship to nature uh, via venoms uh, is a potential representation of this symbol of human health management. 
In terms of toxicology, I sometimes like to consider it as the interface of chemistry and biology. In pharmacology, what we find is that in this interface of chemistry and biology, we do things with the potential for therapeutic effect. Even thousands of years ago, uh, and we're talking two, three, four thousand years ago, we have record of human societies using the herbs of nature in terms of managing their own personal health. In toxicology, the interface between chemistry and biology is an end effect of toxicosis or human disease. In food toxicology, what we find is that it is a study of the nature, properties, effects, and detection of toxic substances in food and their disease manifestation in humans. So when we talk about food and food toxicology, we talk about not only what's on your plate, but the entire human food chain. And so this allows us to have uh, a scope that involves our whole environment and the environmental impacts on the food production system. The historical context of toxicology is quite colorful and interesting. I've put on the website for today's lecture a couple of historical uh, uh, renditions of toxicology, poisonings. Uh, you probably have seen uh, poisonings and, and toxicology, uh, which is sometimes referred to as uh, poisonings, as, as uh, chemistry and anger, uh, if you will. Uh, the colorful representations of poisoning in history uh, and the various uh, types of uh, learning processes that we've used in history. Uh, from the earliest times, uh, people have been aware that some plants are poisonous and should be avoided uh, as food, and they've also known that other plants were found to contain uh, uh, natural products uh, that would have medicinal or stimulatory, hallucinatory, or, or narcotic uh, effects. Uh, this, uh, I like to refer to it as the ecology of food, our understanding of our relationship with the food production capacity of our local and distant environments is a part of human history and the human history of health, thriving, and survival in an environment. In terms of our uh, course, we have uh, 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 a number of uh, segments. Uh, there, the time frame in terms of the presentation of each of these lectures is two per week. Um, each of these uh, modules, these lecture modules, uh, come with a set of homework, uh, a set of advanced reading, a study guide associated with important concepts and words associated with that particular subject matter, and some suggested readings in terms of follow-up. If this particular course of study or this particular module has interest for you in terms of your academic development. At this point in your uh, development, we are all very, very good at surfing the web and finding information. Um, I encourage you to do informal study outside the formal presentation of materials to uh, explore uh, the concepts and the subject matter presented in the course. I encourage you as well in terms of your preparation, advanced reading, and uh, development of case studies to also go to the library. 
It's an amazing resource that I think modern students have uh, fallen away from just because of the fact that so many materials are easily available online. The one caution I will have about online materials is although they are good sound bites quite often of information, uh, they sometimes lack the depth of, uh, of, of knowledge that can be presented in more formal and uh, uh, d uh, presentations such as books or monographs. Although uh, the technical literature is quite often available uh, via online resources, there is still a tremendous amount of human knowledge that is still on paper. I encourage you not to abandon paper just yet in terms of your mastery of the subject area of food toxicology. After today's lecture, the next time we meet, we'll talk about the history of U.S. food regulation. The interface of a society, and we'll use our own here in the United States as an example, of a community of citizens, our relationship to government, and the outrage associated with incidents of perceived or demonstrated risk associated with food toxicology. A hundred years ago, we didn't have much in terms of control of the marketplace in terms of food and drugs. There were several episodes that we'll talk about in that lecture that developed a sufficient public outrage that our representatives uh, uh, actually acted on our behalf to develop, to develop governmental oversight regulatory action to manage the safety of the U.S. food system. This has been a, a historical development. We'll try to brief you on that in terms of some of the major areas of U.S. food regulation and the relationship of that regulation to a safe and nutritious food system. We'll then start uh, introducing uh, some of the core concepts of toxicology. Uh, this will be a general background lecture to familiarize you with some of the jargon associated with uh, toxicology. Because it's uh, sometimes interesting to see an application of these core concepts, I've decided to use pesticide residues in food as an early case study, if you will, or focus area in terms of food toxicology so that you can see some of the jargon and the relationship of a chemical system, pesticides, that are used in the food production system. I introduce pesticides as economic poisons. They are poisons designed to uh, uh, kill pests, whether that be plant pests as herbicides or insect pests as insecticides. What I do is try to use the jargon of toxicology and risk assessment as well as a little bit of the history of U.S. food regulation to give you an idea of this aspect of food toxicology. After this lecture, we then start into a series of lectures that I will suggest are a strong introductory background into uh, what you need to know about toxicology. Uh, we've chosen to use a small book, uh, Essentials of Environmental Toxicology, for this segment. Uh, this book is downloadable as a, an e-book. Uh, it's reasonably inexpensive, um, but for people that have not taken anatomy and physiology, uh, this is a sufficient primer in terms of uh, 
developing the necessary background knowledge uh, of toxicology, uh, biochemistry, human anatomy, human physiology. We start off with a generalized discussion of the quantitative relationship of dose response. We then go into what happens when we cross that interface of chemistry and biology in absorption of toxicants. Once absorbed into the human body, and we use the human body, uh, even though some toxicology uses comparative toxicology, uh, animal studies, we use humans uh, as our study in terms of uptake, distribution, storage, because to be quite honest, I think we think we're more interesting uh, than rodents in terms of physiology. Uh, so we'll talk about the distribution and storage of toxins as the next uh, stage in the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls of food toxicology. We'll follow that with a study of the biotransformation and elimination of toxicants. We are exposed to exogenous compounds in our daily diet. Many of these have potential toxins in terms of some of the naturally occurring components of food. We have a fairly advanced uh, biochemistry uh, in terms of the ability to biotransform these exogenous substances, these potential toxicants, and eliminate them primarily through the urinary tract. We'll do a focus area on target organ toxicology, and so we'll talk about, for example, nephrotoxicity, hepatotoxicity, target organs of particular types of chemicals, and the manifestation of target-based human, target organ-based human disease. The next lecture we'll talk about uh, three subjects, teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis all in one. Uh, for those of you that with uh, uh, even just a, a little bit of imagination can understand that these three major areas uh, are, uh, are incredible sub-disciplines all among themselves. They all have to do with a toxicological disruption of the molecules of life, uh, such as DNA. Uh, we'll try to give you an introductory understanding of the relationship of chemicals uh, via toxicological exposure and the potential endpoints of teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis. The interesting aspect of this is that the intoxication might happen in one generation, the parents, but the disease end effect, the mutagenesis, the teratogenesis, might be a hereditary um, in the offspring of the individual that was intoxicated. We'll then start transforming some uh, food-related uh, uh, toxicoses. Uh, we'll do a lecture on food allergy, a little bit of background on the immune system, and uh, we'll follow that with food intolerance and metabolic disorders, uh, food sensitivities, uh, metabolic disorders of, uh, for instance, enzyme deficiencies that lead to uh, some level of food intolerance. We'll do a series of focuses on several uh, food chemicals uh, naturally occurring in most cases uh, that lead to uh, different types of uh, food sensitizations, food allergies, food intolerance. We'll then do a, a lecture on food additive safety assessment. We'll reflect back to some of what we learned about U.S. regulatory history and the regulatory uh, laws, uh, regulations, uh, policies, that, and procedures that we have in place to ensure uh, safety of, of food additives. These food additives are not only things that uh, give us color or uh, preservatives uh, for, for enhanced uh, shelf life in the food distribution system, 
but sometimes there are uh, s components that are generally uh, regarded as safe or grass. Uh, we'll then take a look at the toxicology of some selected food additives. So we'll take about a half dozen food additives that uh, have had a history in the past uh, oh, 50 years or so of uh, being examined in the U.S. food system uh, for their safety uh, and uh, quite often there are substances that have been banned because of a risk assessment that suggests that there is sufficient risk uh, to human health that uh, these food additives should not be used. The next uh, lecture will take on genetically modified organisms in food. Uh, we'll do this not from the approach of how it's done uh, and the aspects of biotechnology, but we'll look at it from the product-orientated uh, changes in food and how that might influence food toxicosis, food allergy, for example. In doing so, we'll try to do a little bit of a backgrounder. This is a very passionate debate uh, nationally and internationally. We won't take sides in that debate, but what we will try to do is identify the issues in that debate. What people, what governments, uh, what user groups uh, and food processors and producers are talking about when they talk about genetically modified organisms or GMOs in food. Another issue that we'll try to um, analyze critically, but without any of the, the major background uh, issues in terms of the public arena, We'll take a look at the science issues uh, and the processes and the background knowledge we need to have a pretty good understanding of food irradiation as a food processing technique for preservation and food safety in terms of microbial food safety. We'll then take a trip uh, into the ecological biochemistry of food looking at the natural toxins in plants and fungi. Uh, this is a, an interesting lecture in terms of uh, the chemical interaction uh, in nature, ourselves being a part of the animal kingdom. I always invite students to think about how many uh, uh, segments of the, uh, how many kingdoms uh, uh, were, were in your food uh, for this particular day in terms of the plant and animal uh, kingdoms. Uh, we'll talk about how uh, nature has uh, natural toxins out there, natural chemicals, these secondary chemical compounds. Uh, they aren't the nutritional aspects of food but they sometimes uh, give us flavors, uh, they give us colors, but they also can present the potential for toxicoses uh, from some of these uh, chemical compounds. We'll use that to build a basis for an analysis of toxic mold and mycotoxins. Uh, many of us have dealt with uh, uh, various aspects of mold and mold on food. Um, we hope that uh, at least to give you a, a bit of a background of a very interesting subject area of uh, toxic mold and mycotoxins. We'll follow that uh, looking at marine toxins in food. Uh, this lecture will deal with the full scope of seafood safety. Uh, we'll explore things like paralytic shellfish poisoning, ciguatera uh, poisoning in terms of fish. We'll try to give you an idea of the relationship to uh, us and the uh, marine food system, some of the risks that occur out there, some of the manifestations of human disease associated with marine toxins. We'll follow this with uh, an examination of naturally occurring toxicants, but not as the toxicants themselves, but as 
etiologic agents of foodborne disease, the causative agents of disease. And so I invite students in that particular lecture to consider yourself uh, an explorer maybe 100 or 200 years ago, uh, walking in your explorations into a village and finding uh, some sort of manifestation of human disease, and then having to be the detective, if you will, of relating that disease to some sort of environmental or food system cause. Uh, this is uh, uh, the, the diagnostic aspect of uh, food toxicology. We'll then follow that uh, with uh, an interesting lecture in terms of examining uh, the natural world around us in the aspect of bacterial toxigenesis. Here, what we're going to do is not food microbiology or microbiology in the traditional sense, but what we will look at is the toxins uh, by, uh, that, that are, are made by uh, pathogenic bacteria. Uh, some of these toxins being heat stable, so it might be a sterile food, but still have these bacterial toxins in a residual capacity to cause disease. We'll take a look at that and try to develop uh, a fairly broad understanding of some of the concerns in terms of food safety associated with microbiology, but not undertake a study of the microbiology of food. We'll use uh, the next subject to look at another uh, interesting issue in terms of a distributed food system, and that is animal drug residues in food. Here the issue is one of how we have these uh, a, um, concentrated uh, animal operations, typically, that require the management of animal health with veterinary medicines how those veterinary medicines are monitored, registered, and regulated uh, in the human food supply, some of the risks such as uh, 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 the development of antibiotic-resistant uh, microbes uh, will be discussed as a part of this particular uh, lecture. We'll then take on a study of toxicants that are formed uh, during food processing. Uh, for example, the Maillard reaction, which gives us many flavorful compounds. Uh, barbecuing, which uh, uh, is a way that we cook our meat, also present us with uh, some level of toxicants that are formed during this, these particular uh, food processes. We'll take a look at them, explore them, what this current state of knowledge is, the current state of concern, put it in perspective uh, in terms of the full scope of food toxicology. We'll then do a focused uh, area uh, subject matter lecture on dioxins and related compounds in the human food chain. Uh, dioxins are very lipophilic or fat-soluble type compounds. Uh, although they can occur naturally, they are typically products of combustion of chlorinated materials. There are many chlorinated materials uh, in uh, the human anthropogenic world. Uh, we use chlorine for, our, for disinfection of our drinking water, for example. Uh, what risks dioxins present to us? What's the current state of knowledge of dioxin risk assessment? Uh, how do we look at these in the human food chain, especially as highly nonpolar and therefore lipophilic compounds, which would circulate in terms of the human food chain in the, the, uh, the lipid cycle? Uh, we talk, for instance, about uh, the aquatic cycling uh, of uh, soluble materials. Think about the, uh, the lipids that cycle in the environment in terms of plant lipids, animal lipids, in terms of the food chain. 
And what we find is that uh, we are exposed to many of these lipophilic compounds via its uh, pathway in lipids throughout the natural world. We'll then take a, a focused analysis of the risk assessment of lead and arsenic in the human food chain. Each of these heavy metals uh, actually do present uh, the potential and the uh, observed occurrence of human toxicosis. Uh, some of these uh, representations will be historical in terms of the regulatory levels, some of the concerns in exposure, for example, in water and in food, and some of the progression in terms of risk-based management of, of exposure uh, to prevent human disease or human intoxication associated with lead and arsenic. We'll then step into the world of mercury in the human food chain. We'll take a look at the neurotoxic effects of methylmercury, some of the precautionaries in terms of uh, seafood consumption uh, by pregnant women. We'll look at a case study of Minamata disease of when things really uh, go terrible in terms of exposure in the human food chain to, to mercury. Uh, and perhaps stepping back from this historical account, look at, at what uh, we learn from clinical disease, uh, because in fact in toxicology, we don't test on humans. We use comparative toxicology. We test in rodents and test animals, and we extrapolate those results in terms of managing our own risk and modifying our own behaviors. We'll then try and finish the course with a fairly open discussion of the frontiers of food toxicology. What we'll try to do here is present uh, you with the, the uh, global context, if you will, of some of the challenges in terms of managing a safe uh, distributed food system, uh, safe environment, uh, a, uh, a safe interaction of, uh, of humans and, and their food. Uh, we'll talk about perhaps the opportunities for students in this class to be a part of the solution of the problems of the human condition as it's related to food and food toxicosis. Well, toxicology, as you uh, probably are aware, is a subdiscipline. Uh, it is a basic and applied science. The basic science aspects of toxicology are surrounded by the fundamental work on the molecular and biological processes of uh, our interactions with toxic substances. We use that information that's developed in basic science in an applied fashion where we apply this knowledge to practical human problems. Uh, what you see in terms of the debates in the media, perhaps some of the passions that you have, has a lot more to do with applied toxicology than it does with the basic understanding of the mechanisms and processes in terms of the interaction of chemistry and biology. What we do in toxicology is we use this basic and applied information in a risk analysis, uh, and we try to use that to modify uh, our situation so that, in fact, we can thrive in the presence of these chemicals, be they natural or anthropogenic. In terms of the relationship of toxicology and risk analysis, risk analysis uses toxicology uh, and we use it for risk assessment, risk characterization, risk communication, risk management, and the development of various policies related to risk. And this is a governmental responsibility. Of these, risk communication is probably the most difficult because typically risk communication, a black art, if you will, involves uh, the uh, education uh, by experts in the field 
of uh, the general public. Uh, the general public is sometimes very subjective in terms of the development of their attitudes about risk and relative risk. Uh, sometimes these are very impassioned uh, situations in terms of risk, risk avoidance, and the personal presentation of risk. This is an exceptionally challenging uh, area of toxicology. In terms of defining all of the different aspects of toxicology and risk analysis, one can consider risk assessment to be the scientific evaluation of the probability of harm that may result from the exposure to toxic substances. Uh, a subset of risk assessment is the ability to characterize that risk, and that is a description of the nature and the magnitude of the health risk that combines results from exposure assessment and hazard identification, and it also describes the uncertainty associated with each step in that. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uncertainty, but the idea in terms of risk communication, risk characterization and risk assessment is adequately communicating the uncertainty in the process. There is an inherent uncertainty. We as scientists recognize that, but it is hard to uh, communicate that in terms of a public arena. I'll give you an example of the drinking water. Uh, if I were to tell you that your drinking water now tested above a maximum contaminant level of 15 parts per billion lead, uh, the test result came back at 15.01 parts per billion. Do you think that that presents a sufficient risk for action? Uh, in terms of the uncertainty of that laboratory result, the uh, uncertainty, the standard uh, confidence intervals of that result suggests that at a minimum that result can be represented by an uncertainty of plus or minus 10%, uh, 20%, perhaps even 30%. Thus, the uncertainty allows us to suggest that that result is not necessarily over a maximum risk-based contaminant level. Risk communication, as I've said, is uh, one of the more challenging aspects of risk analysis and toxicology. Risk communication is the science of communicating effectively in situations that are of high concern, uh, sensitive, or controversial. Risk communication principles serve to create an appropriate level of outrage, behavior modification, or mitigating response that is in direct proportion to the level of risk or hazard. This is a particular challenge. Uh, this is uh, why we have laws against screaming fire in a crowded theater as a joke. Uh, risk communication, the appropriate words, the appropriate level of passion and concern in terms of communicating with a broad range of uh, individuals in the public is an exceptional challenge. It's one that requires a tremendous amount of deep understanding of the science and technology, but also the ability to communicate that in a fashion uh, that is uh, effective uh, in terms of the general public. Uh, outrage is okay. Uh, there are certain risks to life that we sh that should generate uh, outrage. Uh, it's just managing the outrage to productive ends such that we change those processes. Uh, we modify our behaviors. Uh, we change uh, the uh, uh, or mitigate uh, the situation such that we minimize the risk associated with the new knowledge. 
Risk management uh, is a uh, definitively separate aspect of risk analysis. Um, it is not good to have risk assessors be risk managers. Uh, risk assessors should be developing the science, uh, the technology, the data, the information, the characterization of the risk, and then risk managers then use that information. It's a part of a decision-making process. It involves considerations of political, social, economic, and science and engineering factors. Uh, they bring that in, roll that in with the relevant risk assessments relating to a potential hazard, and it allows you to develop, analyze, and compare options and select an optimal response. An optimal response may not be a perfect response. Risk management is always in the challenge of individuals that want zero risk. Zero risk is, in most cases, an unrealistic option uh, and, in terms of modern society, a very costly option. In terms of our collective national treasures, no matter what country we come from, we have to analyze the expenditure of our national treasure on mitigating risk. How much can we afford in terms of the insurance policy for the car, in terms of mitigating risk, versus the other costs of just driving the car from point A to point B. We have to balance in terms of our available resources. There are limits in terms of tax dollars, personal time, uh, oversight, uh, regulatory, uh, organizational response to uh, risk mitigation and risk management. We only have a fixed resource to mitigate and manage that risk. Uh, there is no such thing as a perfect risk management. Well, let's explore for a few moments, if you will, um, uh, an important aspect of uh, risk assessment in terms of food toxicology, and that's human health risk assessment. We can define this as predictive modeling of the threat to human health pos posed by exposure to toxicants uh, in the human food chain for food toxicology. Uh, for constituents that are systemic uh, tox toxicants, and we'll talk about that and define that a lot more in the course of study, uh, but you just need to know that this is an organismal-based end effect or disease manifestation. But the threat in terms of risk assessment can be expressed in terms of uh, a hazard quotient. This is used uh, quite often in environmental toxicology. It's used less often in terms of human health risk assessment, but it's still the same sort of ratio of uh, exposure to a predetermined toxicity factor, what we know about the relative risks of certain types of exposures. This hazard quotient is just easily formulated as the dose divided by some sort of developed toxicity factor. And this toxicity factor can be kind of a maximum safe intake. So if the maximum safe intake of lead is 15 and uh, you find that uh, the uh, doses perhaps or the water concentration is 30, that hazard quotient is going to be 2. When a hazard quotient exceeds 1.0, we have a problem. We have a big problem if that hazard quotient is 20. It perhaps is a lesser problem if that hazard quotient is 2 in terms of the potential risk associated with a specific situation. Now, systemic tos toxicity, as you'll learn in our dose response uh, lecture, it's a threshold phenomenon. 
Um, we allow that increasing the dose has an observable and related cause effect with a response. Increasing the exposure will cross a threshold such that the biological effects will start to occur at some definitive dose. Uh, the dose that we have in food toxicology is not only the dose from one particular aspect of the food system, for example, water, uh, but it's the total dose from all attributable uh, sources of that toxin. So, for example, uh, we might consider the toxicant load in water, in milk, uh, in vegetables, in meat, uh, in terms of a full food system uh, dose analysis. Now, we'll talk about this in a lot more detail later on in the semester, but cancer is a non-threshold effect. Uh, we don't have uh, a threshold that we cross such that low doses are okay. You may have heard that, uh, for example, because we talk about replication of cells, if we have the development of one cancer cell from a mutation associated with exposure to one chemical, that cell then can carry that mutation and the dose was literally just one molecule. And so we have uh, formulated risk assessment uh, for cancer as a non-threshold phenomenon. For toxicity factors for uh, systemic toxicants, uh, these sometimes are referred to as reference doses, uh, the safe or no effect uh, kind of exposure levels, and we'll talk about those and define these acceptable daily intakes for various uh, uh, potential toxicants like food additives. Um, when we talk about dose and reference dose units, typically these are uh, associated with milligrams uh, per kilogram body weight per day. Uh, these uh, give us uh, some way to manage uh, the uh, size of the dose with the size of the organism. Uh, this helps in terms of uh, uh, rodent studies that we extrapolate the results, but also in terms of looking at the human population and the diversity of the subpopulations within humans, for example, children, where children eat a larger amount of food, so their potential dose in terms of body weight per day, because they're developing, they're burning calories at a faster rate than adults, their potential dose from a fixed concentration in a food product is substantially higher. In terms of human health risk assessment, we can model uh, the dose, and this is uh, typical of risk assessment. You can do this in, in several different ways. I've thrown one formula down here where dose is equal to the constituent concentration times the contact rate in terms of, for example, uh, liters per day of uh, uh, contaminated water. The exposure frequency in terms of days per year that you're going to be drinking that, uh, a body weight of an individual, a range of individuals, and then some sort of unit conversion factors. This is fairly simple and straightforward in terms of doing a mass balance in dose response analysis. Um, in terms of developing these risk models, we know that we can take these very simple formulas like this and do a deterministic or a point estimate where we can pick individual parameters. What's the body weight? Well, we might use an average body weight of a 120 uh, pound individual. Um, Will that uh, ch change the risk assessment in terms of uh, individuals that are lower than that or significantly greater than that in terms of body weight? And the answer is uh, a resounding yes. But we are st still limited by um, the deterministic approach. 
What's kind of nice about deterministic and very simple mathematical formulas like that in terms of risk communication, it's a very straightforward way of saying, you know, for an average individual, an average dose, and it makes our task a little bit easier in risk uh, assessment, risk analysis. Another approach in terms of risk modeling can be probabilistic or stochastic, uh, which is a distribution-based. Uh, and what this will do is take uh, distributions such as the normal distribution of body weights of adult humans and use all of those inputs in the calculation. It's uh, a, a significantly more challenging calculation because you have almost an uh, infinite uh, range of inputs uh, of body weights, for example, into your calculation but new software and computers enable us to do these stochastic calculations with a relative degree of ease compared to several decades ago. Um, what probabilistic uh, calculations in terms of risk modeling allow us to do is to actually quantify the uncertainty. Uh, for example, if you are a, uh, an investor, uh, you'd always like to invest in something that is a little bit of a sure thing. Uh, but if you are a, uh, a risky investor, or maybe you, uh, your, your certainty of profit uh, uh, being significantly lower is an acceptable risk to you. And so this allows for risk-based decision-making if we can quantify the uncertainty. For example, you can calculate perhaps in a different uh, uh, situation the certainty, the, uh, the uncertainty associated with making a profit on a certain transaction is plus or minus 10%. Uh, for somebody that's risk averse, that might be a reasonable investment. Uh, for somebody else, uh, an investment that's plus or minus 50% in terms of making a profit might be an acceptable risk for them. At least it, they have the quantified uh, capacity to make that risk decision. How we do that, and we're not going to talk much about uh, risk assessment, risk management in the course other than the inputs in the whole risk assessment, risk management process. But if you take a look at that calculation where we just base uh, the total risk in a very simplistic format, but recognize, uh, for example, uh, the body weight that might be in that risk calculation, if we take a look at the normal distribution of the uh, human population in terms of body weight, for a deterministic calculation, we would pick an average body weight. But for a probabilistic calculation, we'd use the full range, the full distribution of that. So for uh, the exposure factors, the dose, the, the contact rates, the constituent concentrations, instead of 30 part per million, we could use 30 part, uh, 30 part per billion. We could use that as the mean of the distrib distribution uh, to allow that uh, some types of exposures might be less, some type might be more. But all of those different uh, distributions will actually give us a, a distribution of risk result, uh, whereas a deterministic will give us a risk number. The uh, probabilistic, the stochastic approach will give us a distribution of that risk, and we can then define what our acceptable uncertainty is. Is it 99% uh, uh, certain of the result? Is it 95% confidence? Is it 90%? Uh, and allows us to make risk management decisions based on quantified uncertainty. We can use all of that information that we have in the risk analysis process in, in what I like to call the risk triad. If we take a look at the three colored circles here in the red has risk assessment, uh, that's a lot of what we do in science. 
We'll do hazard identification. We'll do dose-response relationship, the quantitative studies. Sometimes these are animal studies, rodent studies, comparative toxicology. Uh, we'll do exposure assessment. How much of this is in a food product? Uh, how much are individuals eating in terms of daily or lifetime exposure? We'll do some analysis of uh, the risk benefits. Uh, for example, uh, acrylamide in uh, baked and fried products. Uh, the risk benefit there was should we not bake or fry foods because we don't want to expose ourselves to acrylamide, um, the, the benefits assessment of having those different foods available uh, in terms of some of the discussions of many people uh, were a significant factor in outweighing any associated risks. Um, in terms of uh, risk communication, there's a discussion about that risk versus benefits, uh, the psychological and sociological factors associated with risk and the stigma associated with risk, some of the public and political opinions that are involved in the legislative process. Is there, for example, a significant amount of outrage, uh, as you'll learn in our discussion of regulatory history of food in the U.S.? Many of our most prominent pieces of federal law were based in consumer outrage associated with an intoxication or a very, very large-scale uh, interaction of uh, uh, disease from food intoxication. These legislative mandates uh, go into uh, the uh, green circle on the risk triad of risk management. Um, this allows that the risks, once characterized, that the mandates in terms of what the public wants, in terms of our relationship uh, with government, uh, to come up with uh, a set of laws and therefore regulations from those laws in terms of determining precise responses to particular instances. Some of these might come up with a tolerance or an acceptable level of exposure. So it's acceptable to have drinking water less than 15 parts per billion lead, but not more. And so we have an actionable limit, a tolerance, if you will, uh, codified into law that carries the, the weight of law in terms of uh, criminal or tort prosecution. Uh, these regulatory decisions are sometimes adjudicated uh, in uh, the administrative law aspects of our government, and as well, the administrative law is law that is adjudicated by the uh, various administrative offices, such as the FDA, as well as judicial-based uh, court uh, decisions and interpretations, uh, all helping to present uh, a safer food system uh, essentially a, a process for analysis of risk and acceptable risk comparison of what social needs are in terms of access to food, access to safe food, uh, and mitigation of any sort of risk or potential for human disease. Uh, this is a good uh, representation of risk. Uh, you'll take home the majority of what you need to know by uh, analyzing this particular figure and understanding some of the different terms and relationships. Many of these we'll talk about this semester. Risk is a funny animal. Uh, it's not something that most students uh, taking this course of study necessarily will have thought much about. Uh, it's influenced heavily by our perceptions and our preferences. Uh, for example, um, in terms of consumers in the marketplace, you might find uh, that as a well-informed scientist, uh, you know that there is a 
perhaps a certain risk associated with a certain food product, but you have a personal preference that uh, you like that food product and therefore are willing to take that particular uh, risk. We find the, that in analysis, uh, far too often experts in the general public uh, disagree about risk. Uh, it becomes a challenge for scientists, uh, for engineers, uh, to uh, effectively communicate uh, all of the attributes of risk and the information supporting risk-based decisions uh, in the public arena. Uh, as we find in terms of surveys and studies uh, that people will accept about a thousand times greater risk if those risks are voluntary uh, as opposed to those risks that are involuntary. Quite often uh, we find that things like food and water and air uh, that we breathe, our environmental exposures, our food system exposures, are linked into involuntary exposures and therefore we have tremendous amounts of passion associated with the risk. Sometimes that risk uh, formula is elevated if we perceive that someone is profiting from our risk. In other words, for example, if a certain uh, behavior or attribute in the food system is changed such that it changes the risk profile of that food uh, in terms of potential for intoxication and yet we see no benefit other than increased risk but somebody along that distributed food system is perhaps making a profit or enhancing their profitability uh, then there is a, perhaps a distrust of the motivations for that particular change. Some of the risk attributes that lead to this uh, cognitive bias, and, and we are people, we're, we're hard, uh, we're very complex organisms in terms of the development of our attitudes, our perceptions, our preferences. Uh, it has a lot to do with what is talked about as availability. Uh, when a risk scenario is presented to us, if we can imagine uh, or, uh, the, the, the situation, uh, then uh, sometimes it presents it more real to us. Uh, various people that uh, try to manipulate our passions in terms of the media and the marketplace will use this by trying to, for instance, use worst case scenarios, use uh, very graphic descriptions of uh, endpoints that happen only in low percentages as being something that is far more commonplace. Uh, they try to change the availability attributes in terms of our imagination of risk consequences. We also have anchoring attributes in terms of our own history, our own knowledge, uh, our own exposure. Uh, if in fact we're presented with a situation where we have real or perceived uh, uh, knowledge or experience about this area, we tend to extrapolate that knowledge and make some decisions. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing, it's probably a, a good thing that we use whatever information we do have, but it can create a situation of cognitive bias in terms of interpreting the real risk of uh, potential food toxicosis. There's also uh, an asymmetry between uh, the potential for gains versus loss over, uh, for example, a changed uh, process or food. Uh, we value uh, loss significantly greater. So if we are losing something in terms of our valuation, uh, 
that is far greater than perhaps any sort of attribute of gain that we might have. Uh, for example, uh, if we are losing uh, control over local food production and the establishment of genetically modified uh, uh, crop lines, um, then perhaps uh, that is too great, even though the benefits in terms of limiting uh, pesticide use or limiting uh, loss in terms of uh, food preservation, food storage, might be significant, uh, sometimes even lower significant or insignificant losses uh, are magnified in terms of uh, our value system such that we have this asymmetry. Uh, there's also uh, a threshold uh, effect or attribute in terms of uh, risk and risk analysis. Uh, we are adverse to uncertainty. Uh, even though in science uh, we can declare uh, that our risk analysis, risk assessment, yields uh, only a uh, one in a million chance of uh, a bad outcome, uh, people will still perceive that they will be that one in a million person that has that uh, bad particular outcome, even though that is an abuse of the statistics and an abuse of the risk representation. So individuals find themselves wanting complete certainty, complete or zero risk associated with any particular process, especially when that's an involuntary uh, uh, process. In terms of our perceptions uh, about chemicals, uh, it's good to kind of ask ourselves uh, what drives these perceptions. Uh, you'll have to understand that these are very subjective uh, judgments and therefore they involve kind of who we are and what we are and a, and a, a tremendous amount of cultural, social, and personal influence. Uh, we have to ask ourselves uh, the question, are chemicals bad in terms of the public arena? Uh, the word chemicals uh, might as well uh, be a four-letter four word. Uh, when in fact most people don't really understand uh, the role of natural chemicals in our diet. Uh, uh, the aspects of synthetic chemicals have had a uh, larger play, so to speak, on the stage of life. Uh, one aspect of this is just an examination of uh, uh, the uh, 20 or so natural carcinogens that are in coffee. Uh, even though the, the, uh, there is potential uh, for carcinogenesis from some of these compounds, you will rarely uh, hear uh, someone accuse uh, your favorite uh, barista uh, at a coffee shop uh, of being uh, providing uh, carcinogens in terms of your particular diet. Uh, there's a voluntary aspect that this is a food product that we willingly take. Uh, most of us uh, take it for the caffeine. Uh, and for perhaps the coffee flavors uh, that we enjoy. Although, uh, if you take a look at the list of these compounds, there is an element of risk in our morning cup of coffee. This risk perception is something that we as scientists uh, have to explore uh, in terms of the reality. Uh, the perception, for example, um, that we have of pollution and human activity is that it is a significant contribution contributor uh, to human cancer rates and that cancer uh, rates are soaring. In fact, the reality is that life expectancy is increasing uh, across the board in industrialized countries, so there's good aspects in terms of the provision of a safe environment, a safe food system. 
And as it turns out, non-smoking cancer death rates, and this is death rates, and this has a lot to do with enhanced therapies as well, but these are steady or going down. If you take a look at this uh, particular figure from the American Cancer Society, uh, this is the last uh, uh, 70, 80 years or so in terms of cancer death rates uh, for U.S. males. Um, you can see that the majority of uh, these cancer rates are, in fact, uh, going down. Uh, the one that actually is uh, the outlier here is uh, lung cancer. And you can see that, in fact, uh, the uh, uh, public education of cancer, and cancer is a decades-long disease development scenario, that the public education aspects of the risks and the knowledge we have associated with cancer from cigarette smoking has actually made this particular curve in males uh, turn around in terms of uh, exposure to uh, carcinogens uh, from smoking. Uh, that's different in terms of the dynamics. In, uh, in women, uh, you still see all of the uh, cancers uh, going down historically. Uh, for example, stomach cancer, significant uh, reduction in cancer death rates uh, from stomach cancer. Uh, but you do see here in the yellow, again, uh, the uh, increase of uh, lung cancer. And this has a lot to do with the, uh, uh, the uh, ability of women and the removal of social stigma of women uh, smoking uh, that happened in the middle part of the last century. Uh, you remove the stigma, the stigma associated with smoking. Women start smoking. Several decades later, they start developing uh, lung cancer. And you can see that, in fact, this, although uh, a little bit lower in the rate uh, compared to men, uh, is still uh, climbing uh, and perhaps will have the same turnaround that the male death rate uh, had in terms of lung cancer. Another perception is that high-dose uh, uh, animal cancer tests tell us about significant cancer risks for human. In fact, uh, half of all the chemicals uh, that are tested whether it be natural or synthetic chemicals uh, that are used in these standard uh, animal tests turn out to be carcinogenic. Uh, there's some concern that the high doses we have to give to animals to yield uh, results in the short amount of time we have to do science and make these risk-based uh, decisions uh, are in fact uh, causing mitosis or cell disruption. It's not cancer, it's just making the cells turn over faster and therefore have more potential for mutation in natural processes just due to cellular necrosis, not necessarily carcinogenesis. Um, there is a chronic cell wounding mitosis uh, associated enhancing the risk for cancer in an animal study. The perception that we have is that human exposures uh, to carcinogens and other toxins are nearly all due to synthetic chemicals. Uh, in terms of uh, looking at synthetic chemicals and the relationship to the full uh, line or suite of chemicals in the human food uh, diet. Uh, uh, they're somewhat, uh, can be regarded as insignificant. Uh, the amount of synthetic pesticide residues, for example, in plant foods uh, is insignificant to the amount of natural plant uh, pesticides in terms of the chemical warfare, in terms of plant, uh, uh, plant and plant uh, insect species survival. Uh, there are about five to 10,000 natural pesticides consumed every day. These are plant secondary chemical compounds, uh, such as nicotine, uh, which has got strong insecticidal activity for the tobacco plant. Uh, these, in terms of our normal diet, we consume about 1,500 milligrams per day. 
these exogenous substances are managed quite well in terms of uh, our biotransformation uh, in terms of a, a modern diet. Another perception is that synthetic toxins somehow pose a greater carcinogenic uh, risk than uh, or hazard than natural toxins. And the reality is that the proportion of natural chemicals uh, that are carcinogenic uh, when tested in rodents uh, is about the same as uh, for synthetic as for, for natural, about half of them. Uh, we have to respect that in terms of dose response, it's the dose that makes the poison. So all chemicals uh, are toxic at some dose, uh, and it finds, we find that uh, in terms of the chemicals that we ingest, 99.9% .9 of those chemicals are in fact natural chemicals. The perception that toxicology of man-made chemicals is somehow different uh, from those uh, made by man, uh, I mean from, from nature. Uh, as it turns out, uh, humans have these generalized uh, natural defenses, these biotransformation mechanisms to manage uh, exposure to toxicants. Uh, we've, uh, our livers are very talented uh, organs in terms of biotransformation and elimination, uh, turning many toxicants into a form that can be easily eliminated uh, in terms of urine or fecal elimination. Um, and so we are, have a significant buffer against toxins whether those are natural toxins or synthetic toxins. We have a perception that uh, correlation implies uh, causation, and we find that there is no persuasive evidence from either epidemiology or toxicology that pollution or trace contaminants in the human food system is a significant cause of cancer for the general population. What we do find is a significant cause of cancer in the human population is behaviors, uh, things like uh, alcohol, smoking, uh, uh, infectious disease. These are uh, known epidemiological links to car carcinogenesis. There are toxicology issues uh, beyond cancer, and so we have perceptions and relationships in terms of this, but some of these uh, issues include uh, occupational exposures, uh, a concept of endocrine disruption where trace extraordinarily bioactive chemicals uh, uh, that uh, uh, come to us from environmental exposures, uh, sometimes from uh, a uh, anthropogenic chemical set, uh, and sometimes from uh, food like uh, uh, phytoestrogens uh, in soy. Uh, there are subclinical effects that we have to worry about. We'll talk about those, for example, in dioxin, where we can monitor molecular changes, cellular changes, but perhaps uh, not clinical changes in terms of uh, disease manifestation. We have to be concerned as well about developmental effects, uh, that somehow or another low-level intoxication is uh, challenging uh, early childhood development in terms of development of IQ, neurological systems, uh, essentially making these children less uh, than they could be in terms of uh, development, uh, uh, not, as, not uh, associated with exposure to some particular chemical or another. We have to make uh, room for sensitive populations. Uh, we are not average adults. We all have our peculiarities, our idiosyncrasies. Um, uh, these sensitive populations uh, are where we should make most of our toxicological uh, decisions. Uh, we, again, are just not average individuals. 
The complexity of uh, a modern life suggests that we have multiple exposures, and so management analysis of intoxication from one vector, for example, food, is quite often insufficient. Uh, uh, in terms of natural and synthetic uh, toxicants, we can have exposure from multiple sources, uh, whether it be airborne, uh, waterborne, foodborne. Uh, all of these have a potential in terms of increasing the dose uh, by increasing the level of exposure. And then we also have to give some room for what we don't know. Uh, although uh, toxicology in its incremental uh, uh, increases in understanding of the human condition as it relates to our relationship with nature and the food system has come a very long way. There is still a tremendous amount that we do not know and we have to have uh, a certain level of precaution uh, about uh, the potential for risk presentation from things that we don't know or fully understand. There are some complex modifiers uh, to our risk perception uh, beyond the science. Uh, we find that violated trust uh, is a tremendous uh, driver in terms of our passions. Uh, we sometimes will uh, allow for uh, this system of reliable strangers to, in effect, uh, carry us in terms of managing our risk from food intoxication. Uh, when that system of reliable strangers breaks down, uh, we consider that trust that we have put in that system to be violated. There can also be a modification in terms of uh, some uh, capacity that we all have for uh, visceral, uncontrollable fear or dread of an outcome, uh, fear of cancer, fear of uh, some sort of disease, uh, some sort of infirmity associated with the food that we eat. Uh, there's a big fear of the unknown, what we don't understand. Uh, the world around us, uh, the food distribution system, is increasingly more complex and uh, it's getting extremely difficult to be able to bring the experts and the, f and the general public together in a common understanding such that we have adequate uh, input uh, to support uh, individual consumer choice, individual critical thinking. There's also the aspects of stigma and social structures in terms of how we adopt behaviors, uh, what are the cultural, social influences on food choices, uh, on food preparation, on what is uh, uh, allowable. Uh, for example, uh, when we have uh, African nations declaring uh, that uh, GMO foods uh, are unacceptable uh, even while they are experiencing famine and food distribution challenges, uh, creates a uh, tremendous amount of uh, concern in terms of understanding the cultural influences and the social influences of food and food choices. Well, we can summarize uh, our introduction to this course, Food Toxicology, uh, with the course goals. And uh, to reiterate, I want all of the students to, to understand this and to to have this in the, the, the forefront of their uh, consciousness in terms of uh, all of the hard work associated with uh, this particular course of study. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to attempt to provide you all with a broad foundation of knowledge uh, about the sources, pathways, receptors, and the controls of toxicants in the human food system. 
will try to assist you as students in achieving uh, a very high level of understanding uh, and also an interpretive capacity in terms of uh, the science uh, and the background in terms of risk assessment in food toxicology. We want to try to help you develop your critical thinking skills uh, about the risks associated with foodborne toxicants. This hopefully uh, gives you um, uh, encouragement and not discouragement about undertaking uh, this particular course of study. Uh, I will tell you that uh, I enjoy uh, teaching, I enjoy this subject matter, and I hope that you enjoy this course. With that, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much.